Welcome to the November 4th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, we'll review a research article showing beneficial effects of prenatal immunotherapy in a mouse model of anti-CD36-mediated fetal and neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia. Next, we'll look at results of a simulation analysis suggesting that gene therapy for hemophilia B is more cost-effective than on-demand or prophylactic factor treatment. We'll conclude with a report which provides important new insights into regulation of terminal erythroid maturation at the transcription level that may help improve our understanding of normal and abnormal erythropoiesis. The first article is entitled, Successful Prenatal Therapy of Anti-CD36-Mediated Severe FNAIT by Deglycosylated Antibodies in a Novel Murine Model by Zhang Zhu and Dawai Chen of the Guangzhou Blood Center in Guangdong, China, and colleagues. Fetal and Neonatal Alloimmune Thrombocytopenia, or FNAIT, is a disorder that results from antibodies that are transported from the maternal circulation to the fetus via the neonatal FC receptor. This leads to fetal platelet clearance and endothelial dysfunction, resulting in bleeding complications. Antibodies against human platelet antigen 1A, or HPA1A, are the cause of FNAIT in about 80% of cases in Caucasian populations. By contrast, antibodies against CD36 are increasingly recognized as an important risk factor for FNAIT in African and Asian populations. Women with a deficiency of CD36 across multiple cell types, termed a type 1 deficiency, are at risk of developing anti-CD36 antibodies when they are exposed to CD36 via pregnancy or transfusion. FNAIT caused by anti-CD36 antibodies has been associated with a variety of clinical manifestations, ranging from widespread petechial hemorrhages to thrombocytopenia, miscarriages, hydrops fatalis, and intracranial bleeding. The prevention of fetal bleeding complications through antenatal therapy with intravenous immunoglobulin, or IVIG, is the current first-line treatment of FNAIT. An alternative approach may be the therapeutic use of deglycosylated antibodies. The authors previously demonstrated that, in mice, a deglycosylated monoclonal antibody specific to HPA1A was able to pass through the placenta and prevent clearance of fetal platelets due to maternal anti-HPA1A antibodies. Now, they demonstrate the feasibility of using deglycosylated anti-CD36 antibodies and their superiority to IVIG in a mouse model of FNAIT. In their investigations, Zhu and colleagues immunized female CD36 knockout mice with wild-type platelets before breeding them with wild-type male mice. Flow cytometry analysis confirmed that the female knockout mice developed anti-CD36 antibodies after immunization. Pups born to these mothers had only mild thrombocytopenia, but a high rate of mortality. About 40% of pups were found dead, compared to 4% or fewer in control cohorts. A few pups born to the immunized CD36 knockout mice died in utero, but most died after delivery due to complications such as bleeding, intracranial hemorrhage, and hydrops fatalis. Anti-CD36 antibodies were detected in fetal sera and fetal platelets confirming that they crossed the placenta and induced severe FNAIT that frequently resulted in death. 
investigators found that treating the immunized CD36 knockout mothers with IVIG could prevent severe FNAIT in this animal model, though timing of treatment was quite important. The frequency of fetal death was still high, at 40%, in mothers who received IVIG three times on days 10, 15, and 20 after breeding. By contrast, a significant reduction in fetal death was observed when IVIG was given earlier. The fetal death rate was just 12.7% when IVIG was given on days 7, 12, and 17 after breeding. Building on their previous investigations, Zhu and colleagues then evaluated the use of anti-CD36 antibodies to prevent FNAIT. Only 5.26% of pups died when immunized CD36 knockout mothers were injected with deglycosylated anti-CD36 polyclonal antibodies on days 10, 15, and 20. Given this marked advantage, Zhu and colleagues then generated a series of mouse monoclonal antibodies against mouse CD36. One clone with high affinity against CD36 was selected and deglycosylated. Immunized CD36 knockout mothers injected with this monoclonal antibody exhibited a fetal mortality rate of only 2.17%, representing a single dead pup out of 46 in the cohort. This study also provides some interesting insights into the pathogenic effects of maternal anti-CD36 antibodies. The immunized CD36 knockout mothers exhibited placental deficiency that was restored by deglycosylated monoclonal antibody treatment. As described in the report, researchers hypothesized that maternal anti-CD36 antibodies may impair angiogenesis of fetal placenta endothelial cells, which may explain the high rate of fetal death observed in the mouse model. One very interesting finding is that human CD36 could also react with the monoclonal antibody against mouse CD36. The monoclonal antibody recognized human CD36 and could inhibit the binding of maternal anti-CD36. In her accompanying commentary, Maria Therese Allen of the University Hospital of North Norway said that this research sets the stage for translational research into the use of this antibody for prenatal immunotherapy in pregnancies complicated by maternal anti-CD36 antibodies. There are other strategies in the pipeline to improve prenatal therapy for alloimmunized pregnancies. According to Allen, Inhibitors against the neonatal FC receptor may provide a promising one-treatment-fits-all option for a wider range of implicated antigens. Overall, the results of the current study by Zhu and colleagues are significant in that they have established a mouse model of FNAIT that reproduces the symptoms of human FNAIT induced by anti-CD36 antibodies. Furthermore, severe clinical symptoms were prevented by antenatal treatment with the anti-CD36 deglycosylated monoclonal antibody, which was more beneficial than IVIG. A humanized deglycosylated monoclonal antibody should be feasible for immune therapy in the near future. Next, let's turn to an article entitled The Cost-Effectiveness of Gene Therapy for Severe Hemophilia B, a micro-simulation study from the United States perspective, by Nancy Bulos of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and co-authors. According to results of this analysis, gene therapy was more cost-effective than on-demand treatment for prophylaxis for patients with severe hemophilia B in the United States. Hemophilia B is an X-linked blood coagulation disorder characterized by deficiency of factor IX. Patients with hemophilia B experience spontaneous and trauma-induced bleeding, 
primarily into joints, which can range in severity from mild to fatal. In cases of severe deficiency, or less than 1% factor 9 activity, patients can experience long-term morbidities, such as hemophilic arthropathy, for which surgery is often required. For many years, on-demand replacement of factor 9 represented the standard of care for patients with hemophilia B. However, in comparison to on-demand therapy, prophylactic treatment has been shown to reduce the number of bleeding episodes and minimize morbidity. More recently, gene therapy has emerged as a promising approach. Using a single outpatient infusion, two adeno-associated virus-mediated gene therapy trials using a factor IX Padua transgene have demonstrated over 90% reduction in bleeds and factor use, with sustained factor expression for up to three years. There are few studies describing the potential cost of the gene therapy approach, and limited comparative economic data are available to government programs and private insurance payers to make financing decisions regarding gene therapy for hemophilia B. Bulos and co-authors conducted an analysis of the cost-effectiveness of adeno-associated virus-mediated factor IX Padua gene therapy for severe hemophilia B patients in the United States in comparison to on-demand and prophylactic factor replacement. They developed a cost-utility microsimulation Markov model based on input parameters from the published literature and peer-reviewed clinical trial findings. They made conservative assumptions regarding factors such as the sustained effect of gene therapy. They also conducted a range of sensitivity analyses to account for uncertainty. Although the prevalence of severe hemophilia B in the United States is approximately 1,500 individuals, the researchers simulated a large cohort of 500,000 male patients with severe hemophilia B to ensure that their final model outputs were stable and to mitigate the effect of outliers. Investigators estimated the cost of gene therapy at $2 million. They also assumed a cost-effectiveness threshold of $150,000 per added quality-adjusted life year. They also assumed gene therapy infusion at the age of 18 and an 18-years-old-until-death time horizon. Their modeling showed that the average cost for gene therapy was $6.3 million in patients receiving gene therapy and standard half-life factor IX prophylaxis after gene therapy-induced factor IX levels have waned, and $7.3 million for gene therapy with extended half-life factor IX prophylaxis. In contrast, average costs for on-demand and prophylaxis approaches ranged from $7.9 million to $20.3 million. The cost per quality adjusted life year was approximately $274,000 per gene therapy plus standard half-life prophylaxis and $318,000 for gene therapy with extended half-life prophylaxis. Investigators used the gene therapy approach with the lower cost per quality adjusted life year as the reference approach to calculate the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio. They found that compared to on-demand and prophylaxis approaches, Gene therapy was dominant, meaning that it was less costly and yielded more quality-adjusted life years. In sensitivity analyses, gene therapy was cost-effective more than 90% of simulations at the $150,000 cost per quality-adjusted life year threshold. Secondary outcomes included the number of bleeds, number of joint surgeries, life expectancy, and quality of life. Patients receiving gene therapy had the lowest expected rates of minor and major bleeds. Expected joint replacement surgeries were zero in the gene therapy group, zero for the prophylactic approach, and two for the on-demand group. 
On-demand treatment reduced patient quality of life by 54%, compared to 26% for prophylaxis and 20% for gene therapy. By integrating available clinical data, real-world costs, and some assumptions to bridge lack of evidence, this study suggests gene therapy could yield significant budget savings for healthcare systems as it improves patient outcomes and quality of life. In her accompanying commentary, Margaret Ragney of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center wrote that, while the price of gene therapy is steep, it is not as costly as chronic factor use, orthopedic surgery, management of bleeding, and hospitalization over the lifetime of an adult. She adds that the one-and-done concept of gene therapy is compelling from a compliance and global perspective. Despite these encouraging findings, several challenges of gene therapy need to be tackled, including variability and durability of gene expression, immunogenicity, and hepatotoxicity. In addition, novel gene therapy approaches need to be adapted to those who are currently excluded, including individuals with inhibitor alloantibodies, natural adeno-associated virus antibody, and active hepatitis B or C liver disease. The final article, entitled Regulation of RNA Polymerase II Activity is Essential for Terminal Erythroid Maturation, is from Zachary Murphy of the University of Rochester and colleagues. The terminal maturation of human erythroblasts is associated with significant changes in gene expression and requires the coordinated actions of transcriptional regulators and epigenetic modifiers. Defects in the erythroid maturation process are associated with inherited anemias and myelodysplastic syndromes. Maturation is characterized by dramatic nuclear condensation prior to enucleation in maturing erythroblasts. It has been assumed that accumulation of heterochromatin underlies this process due to the progressively dense appearance of the condensing nucleus. Post-translational modifications, including histone deacetylation and histone methylation, are considered important to nuclear condensation and enucleation in erythroblast studies. However, most of these studies have evaluated murine erythroblasts in early or mid-maturation. By contrast, the chromatin landscape in more mature human erythroblasts is not as well described. Murphy and colleagues hypothesized that changes in the abundance of specific histone post-translational modifications would be linked to terminal maturation of human erythroblasts. They utilized mass spectrometry to assess abundance of histone post-translational modifications in maturing human erythroblasts. Through use of chromatin immunoprecipitation sequencing, they were able to determine how those marks were distributed in the genome. They found that maturing human erythroblasts underwent dramatic nuclear condensation and changes in gene expression, but without accumulation of heterochromatin. Erythroid maturation was associated with loss of histone marks that are associated with transcription elongation, with no corresponding increase in heterochromatin marks. These findings suggest that terminal erythroid maturation is controlled largely at the level of transcription. Their investigations also revealed dynamic maturation stage-specific changes in the activity of RNA polymerase II that were essential for erythroid gene expression. HEXM1 was found to be a key regulator of RNA polymerase II activity and erythroid gene expression, and was found to be essential in terminal erythroid maturation. For example, overexpression of HEXM1 enhanced erythroid proliferation and disrupted terminal maturation. Of note, RNA polymerase II pausing was highly correlated with transcriptional repression. 
In intermediate erythroblasts, there is an increased RNA polymerase II pausing at non-erythroid genes. In mature erythroblasts, elongation-competent RNA polymerase II levels become a scarce resource, and recruitment is restricted to erythroid genes. In their accompanying commentary, Ming-Yi Zhi and Jorg Bungert of the University of Florida highlight previous studies showing that during erythropoiesis, RNA polymerase II transcription becomes more and more restricted to genes essential for the function of red blood cells. This was thought to be primarily due to an overall decrease in chromatin accessibility and restricted recruitment of RNA polymerase II to erythroid genes by cell type-specific transcription factors including GATA1. The current study, therefore, highlights an unexpected and novel aspect of transcription regulation during erythropoiesis, the repression of transcription elongation at non-erythroid genes during a transient phase of erythroid maturation. Xi and Bungert conclude that insights on RNA polymerase II transcription regulation from this study may help improve understanding not only of erythroid cell maturation, but also of how specific mutations, such as in GATA1, perturb erythropoiesis and result in anemias. Lastly, understanding of the mechanisms of chromatin structure and gene regulation during terminal erythroid maturation sets the stage for novel therapeutic approaches for anemias. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.